0: This morning we read from Micah 5, verses 1 to 8. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, when we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces and there is none to deliver. Good
1: morning. How are you doing navigating this whole Christmas season? Doing okay? When I was about 12 years old, I remember going deep sea fishing off the coast of Oregon with my dad and my grandfather. We went a ways out, and the fishing was kind of mediocre, but... We were far away from land and for me as a young boy I thought I feel completely lost out here. I can't see anything except water. Then we got this alarm coming from the Coast Guard that said we needed to get back immediately because a big storm was coming and it was going to be dangerous. And immediately my grandfather started heading us right back to port. How did he know where to go? For me I didn't really understand it but The boat had a navigation system, I don't know exactly if it was with radar or bouncing off beacons, but it had to look out to figure out some connection with something beyond what was right around us to be able to navigate back to shore. We made it fine, unfortunately another boat didn't. A couple people died because the boat was capsized because they were caught in the storm. You see many years ago boats had to stay close to the shore where they could see the shoreline because if they got out in the middle of nowhere they had no way to navigate they were just simply lost there were no reference points and then gradually over the years different navigational systems developed they began to see the read the sun and they could take triangular Measurements, and they began to read the stars, and they could figure out where they were out in the middle of the ocean because unless they looked up, they couldn't figure it out. Apparently, the Vikings had something called a, a sunstone that we, didn't, we don't quite understand even now how it worked, but when the sun was hidden behind clouds, they could figure out the exact location of the sun so they could figure out where they were on the ocean. Then developed radar and other means of bouncing sound off something outside of you to today where ships are guided by GPS, where they bounce themselves, the signals off of a satellite to figure out where they are. You see, to know where you are out in the middle of the ocean where there's no other reference points, you have to look up. You have to look beyond yourself. I read recently someone's perspective and it made a lot of sense to me that there's two major values in our world today. Of course, there's others, but two major ones that really stood out to this person. Number one is that choice is king. We demand as a culture many choices. Think about it. We, we, we insist on having a lot of options at a coffee shop, all the different kinds of coffee we can choose from. We insist on having a lot of different churches to choose from. At supermarkets, we just don't get one of an item. We have a multitude of items. I mean, do we really need 20 different kinds of toothpaste to choose from? Or fill in the blank. But we demand it as a culture. We want to be able to make the choice ourselves. The other value that this person highlighted, again, that made a lot of sense to me, is that We distrust authority. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. You see, authorities are messed up. They don't do it right. They make wrong choices. So don't tell me what to do. I will make my own choices. I will be deciding for myself how to navigate through life. But unfortunately, such relativism that says, and that's the technical philosophical word, but... Relativism is simply I am going to decide what's right I am my own authority and I don't want to look outside myself to any other authority but living that way is essentially like being out in the middle of the ocean and having no reference points and our culture really is filled with people floating around with not really knowing where they're going And if you talk to another boat, you may get some idea about where to go, but they don't know either. They're just as lost. So there's lost boats everywhere in our culture. But here's the odd thing about us. We want to say, I'm going to decide for myself. But every human being was created to look to their creator. We were built to depend on him, to navigate by his guidance, to let him lead us. So as much as we want to be completely self-guided and figure out life on our own, yet what happens is we begin looking to something to guide us because looking to ourselves doesn't work. And so we look to someone, a politician, a scientist, a celebrity, some kind of expert, someone that maybe can help us navigate through life. But again, it's just like looking at another boat that's just as lost as you are, ultimately. I think that's why our world is so ripe for the, an Antichrist, some authoritarian leader who's going to tell us where to go because we sense how lost we are as a culture. We want somebody to make it all okay. Well, as Christians, it's Christmas time. We celebrate the coming of Jesus as a baby. It's amazing that he came. He invaded our world and became one of us so we could relate to him personally. But that baby came not to just be a human that we can relate to. He actually came to also die on the cross, but then ultimately to be our king. To be the one that we look to to navigate through life to depend on for everything we do. So what does it mean to look to Jesus as our navigation system? <laughs> to live a life where we're constantly bouncing the signals off him so that we can figure out where we're going and where we are. Well, Micah 5, I think, will go a long ways to showing us what that looks like. So let's pray together and we'll look at this text together. Lord, we admit that too often we look to ourselves and, and we do get pretty lost. It's not a good way to live, and yet we forget you. So help us today to see you more clearly for who you really want us to know you as, so that we can continually be navigating through life in connection to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this text, I want to highlight four words that I think describe who Jesus is wants us to know him as, how he wants us to view him as our navigator in life. The first word I want to highlight that I pull out of, not directly in this text, but in what I understand the text to be saying, and that's that he wants to be our friend. Jesus wants to be our friend. Let me highlight that here. But first, let me give a setting, the setting of the book of Micah. I hope you found it, by the way. It's You know, way back there. It's page 777 in my Bible, by the way. Micah was a prophet during the reign of several kings from about 740 B.C. to about 700 B.C. It was a time where the kingdom had been divided. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had, had had no good kings at all. The southern kingdom had a few good kings, but mostly bad kings. When you look to someone to navigate by, a leader to follow, the nation of Israel was looking for somebody and they hadn't found anybody. Assyria was the major threat. Assyria was a cruel nation, a powerful nation that wiped out anybody they fought against and they came in 722 BC, wiped out the northern kingdom. Then they wiped out a lot of the cities in the southern kingdom and came and besieged Jerusalem itself, things were not looking good. Hezekiah was the king, as you may recall, and he prayed to the Lord. He said, Lord, we're nothing, and unless you intervene, we're lost. And that very night, God struck down 180,000 Assyrians who were besieging the city of Jerusalem, and their leader, Sennacherib, crawled home and was killed by his own sons not long afterwards. People had seen many bad kings. But it's interesting to me that Micah doesn't focus on that. He doesn't focus on Hezekiah being a pretty good king. He doesn't focus on anything of that like that. What he does is focuses 700 years into the future. It says the king you really want. The king you need to navigate by. The king you need to look to for true leadership is coming. But he's 700 years in the future so he wants us I think again to go back to view him as a friend why do I say that well verse 2 but as for you Bethlehem Ephrathah too little to be among the clans of Judah from you one will go forth from me and then in verse 3 it says that he'll be born there in Bethlehem it says Bethlehem is too little to be counted You know, if you were making a list of all the cities or towns, little villages in Israel, you wouldn't even count Bethlehem because it was so small and insignificant at this period. And it was in Jesus's day too, ultimately. But I like the way that Micah personalizes this because notice it's a figure of speech. It's a personification, they call it, where Micah speaks directly to the city but you, Bethlehem, Ephratha. why does he do that? Well, because essentially it's meant to cause us to connect with it and realize God's speaking to us. You, who are too small to be counted. You, who feel too insignificant to really matter in this world. You, who feel like you're a nobody. The creator of the universe is coming to you. He wants to be born in you. He wants to fill you with his life. He ultimately wants to be your friend. Jesus came to be a friend to us, to have a personal relationship with us. Think for a minute who your best friend is. What makes them your best friend? best friend is somebody you know is always going to be there, right? Somebody you can share your life with, somebody who shares their life with you. In fact, Jesus talks to his disciples like that and describes himself as their friend and ultimately to us as well. And John 15, verse 12, where he says, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his Friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. Jesus says, I want to be your true friend. I want to share my life with you. I want to have a relationship where you know me and I know you and we're committed to one another. We choose one another so that I can, we can live life together. But as a friend of mine said, true friends are really rare, right? Human friends. We're lucky if we get a few friends throughout life that are really, really those kinds of friends. But the point is, Jesus wants to be that kind of constant friend to us. And Jesus says, I want you to see me as your friend no matter how insignificant you may feel. Many of us know the hymn was written in the 1800s, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. But you may not know the story behind it. It was written by a man named Joseph Scriven. Joseph was an Irishman. He was a young man, fell deeply in love with a young woman And let me just read this to you. He was had the prospect of a great citizen with high ideals and notable aspirations, fell in love with a young lady and was eager to spend her life with him. However, on the day before their wedding, she fell from her horse while crossing a bridge over the river Ban and was drowned in the water below. Joseph stood helplessly watching on the other side. In an effort to overcome his sorrow, he wandered, ended up in Canada. There, he eventually fell in love again, and as he prepared to make a life with this new woman, just before they got married, she was overcome with pneumonia and died. For the rest of his life, he remained single, it says he labored in Port Hope among the impoverished widows and sick people. He often served for no wages and even shared his clothes with those less fortunate than himself. And he wrote the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Given that story, think about the words that he describes. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and our griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. This Joseph Scriven, who lost his closest friends on earth, chose to spend the rest of his life navigating by his true friend, Jesus, who bore his sorrows, who walked with him through life and gave him the freedom to give his life away. You see, Jesus is a friend we can trust. He presents himself to us first as a friend. One who truly loves us. That's why he came as a baby. He's approachable. (laughs) He wants us to see him as one that we can always come to and live in daily relationship with him. Is Jesus your greatest friend? When you think about I want to spend time with somebody. Does his name come first? Have you gotten to know him in that way, like Joseph knew him? Do you have a daily love relationship with him? That's the kind of leader he is. He's a friend to enjoy. Second word I see in this text to describe what Jesus wants to see us to see him as, his ruler. He wants us to see him as our personal ruler says from you will go forth from me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The word for ruler here means to have absolutely absolute authority over others to rule over, to have power over. Now, in our culture, I understand, because of our distrust of authority, we don't like that. We, we kind of think, I, I don't want anybody to have that kind of power over me. How can I trust them? But that's exactly what we're made for, is to relate to Jesus as our ruler. And in fact, how's it working for the world to ignore Jesus and try to be their own authorities? It's not working well. Life only works when we submit to the one we were created to be in relationship to, to navigate our lives by, to look to him and let him lead, we submit to him because he's the only one worth submitting to. He's entered our world. He understands exactly what we need. But it says here, he's also been going forth from eternity. This ruler is not just one who went forth into Bethlehem, but actually he's been going forth. He's been active in this world. He's been controlling everything that happens ultimately from the before the beginning of time through creation right up to the present. That's the one we can trust in because he's been in control all along. Verse 3 is interesting to me where he says, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor is born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. He will give them up. What's Micah talking about? It's talking about all those years from the Babylonian captivity and all the years of being under Greece and being under Rome all the way up to the birth of Jesus. You see, Jesus is ultimately in control. He planned all that. Here, 700 years B.C., saying, oh, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. I'm going to give them up until that time. It's just a reminder that all of it's under God's plan. All of it's under his control. He's always the blessed controller. God knows what he's doing. It means that no matter what happens in my life or in your life, I can know that he's in control. Whether I understand what he's doing or not, everything that comes into my life is in his hands. So I can surrender to his authority. I can keep navigating my life By him Only as I do that am I able to navigate through all the things that come into our lives. So whether you have a health issue that's a challenge or some kind of circumstance or a relationship difficulty, if you know him as your ruler and you're navigating by him, then you can rest in his leadership knowing he's at work in the midst of the whole situation. He knows what he's doing. I had a friend, Corvin who had a very brilliant scientific mind and resisted God for many years. It just didn't make sense to him. I mean, who could believe that stuff? One day as he was riding his bike, because he was an avid biker, he was going full speed, he was in the bike lane, and he was concentrating, and he forgot to look up. By the way, you always get in trouble when you don't look up, right? (laughs) Forgot to look up, and at the last second, he looked up, and in the bike lane was parked a landscape truck and a trailer. He hit it going full speed. He had a bike helmet on, but he still broke his neck. Fortunately, he wasn't paralyzed, but it damaged his spinal cord such that he, for the next three and a half years, experienced terrible pain that the doctors could not relieve despite pain pumps pain pills everything they could do they could not relieve his pain he and I met weekly for a lot of that time just talking and praying together and he still was resistant to God initially but he began to soften and in that time came to Christ and he told people That was the best bike ride of my life. The pain eventually took his life after those three and a half years, but we know where he is. You see, God is a ruler who's in control, who has bigger purposes than we understand, and things that can seem to be tragedies can be things that God can redeem in a powerful way for eternity. So we can trust him as the blessed controller. The third word I see in this text to describe how Jesus wants us to know him and look to him is a shepherd. Verse 4, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Jesus wants you to know him as a shepherd. The great thing about shepherds is they're with the sheep all the time. I mean, they hang out with them. They sleep with them. They're there with them. That's what they do. They care for the flock. They know them intimately. You know, a good shepherd thinks, yeah, that's Larry over there. He tends to wander off a lot. I got to keep an eye on him. And, and then there's Lulu. Lulu the lamb. <laughs> she falls over. She can't get up. I got to help her. And Fluffy, you know, good old Fluffy, Gets caught in the brambles all the time. I gotta go get fluffy free. God knows you so intimately and personally as your shepherd. He knows your weaknesses, He knows your strengths, He knows where you get into trouble. And He cares, He's compassionate. He knows where you make bad choices. He knows how you wander off. He knows when you're too sick to walk. He's strong enough to keep after us. He's such a good shepherd that he tailors life to who you are to make sure you get the best grass and the best water. Now, that doesn't mean you won't go through some rocky canyons and scary places on the way but he knows exactly what's best for you, and that's why you can trust him in the midst of life. And it says here that he will arise and shepherd in the strength of Yahweh, in the strength of the Lord God himself. I don't know about you, but that's pretty comforting to me to know that this shepherd who cares about me is strong enough to handle not only the enemies that might come against me, but he's strong enough to handle me. (laughs) and the mess I can make of things. He has all the strength of Yahweh himself. Nothing can keep him from doing his job to the full. He can take care of us. And then it says, he will shepherd in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Now, to me, that's kind of disjunctive here it's like wait he's a shepherd who smells like the sheep because he's with him all the time but he has majesty this shepherd has majesty the word means to be lifted high to be exalted at least one image that comes to mind for me is how a shepherd my wife and I were hiking up in the foothills and we saw this whole herd of sheep and we looked and where's the shepherd and then we saw him sitting up on the hill where he could see all the sheep and where all the sheep could see him. You see, they could know that he's there because he was high, exalted. (laughs) And he could see all the sheep and know exactly what they need. He's exalted. He shepherds in the majesty of the Lord God. So whatever you're facing, whether it's, some baggage you carry from your past and some garbage, or whether it's some difficulty you're facing now or whatever you face in the future. You can navigate your life by looking to the shepherd who's on the hillside, who's with you, who's there all the time, and therefore you can find peace in him. This strong, majestic shepherd who is caring for you. Then the final word I see in this text to describe who Jesus is, and again, the word's not here, but the picture of it is, and that's warrior. He's a warrior. He wants you to know him as your warrior. Notice verse 5. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, we will raise against him seven shepherds, eight leaders, they will shepherd the land of Assyria, etc., Halfway through verse 6, he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. The battle's gotten pretty fierce, right? And we all have Assyrians we have to face. Life is a battle. We need a warrior who will fight for us, who will defeat the Assyrian. Now, as New Testament believers, who are our enemies? They're not flesh and blood. They're not literal Assyrians, right? The scripture is very clear. Our enemies are not flesh and blood, but rather the spiritual forces of darkness, Satan, the world system and its ways of thinking, and our own flesh. Those are the enemies we face, and they are way too strong for us. There's no way we could fight against them and win. But we have a warrior to look to, To fight our battles for us. He is the one who defeats the Assyrians. And I like the word here where it says he will deliver us, his people. That word for deliver means to snatch out of. It's used of the Exodus where God took the entire nation of Israel and took them out of Egypt through the ten plagues out of Pharaoh's hand. He snatched the people out of there. But also it's used... Of David, when he talks about being, when he's going to face Goliath, and he said, I'm not afraid of this guy because you know what? When I have lived as a shepherd, when a lion or bear would come and they would grab one of the sheep, I would go and snatch it out of their mouth and kill it. Kill the lion, kill the bear. You see, the Lord does that with us. He's a warrior for us who delivers us. Yes, sometimes we get a little bit chewed up by life. But he snatches us out. He delivers us for his greater purposes. He defeats our out, outer enemies. But one thing that strikes me in verses 7 and 8 is he not only defeats our outer enemies, but he defeats our in, inner enemies as well. Our own flesh, our own pride, our own arrogance, our, uh, the things, their selfishness, the things that keep us from being everything God created us to be. He defeats those as well. And notice what he says in verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob, that's God's people and ultimately us. The remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like do From the Lord, like showers on vegetation which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. You see, Jesus' plan as being the one who fights for us is to help us become everything we were created to be. And the first thing he mentions that we are created to be is like dew. I love the simile, it's a beautiful picture. We're to bring living water in the desert of Israel. It rains almost not at all. But there is dew often in the mornings when the temperature drops and you get dew and it waters. There wouldn't be any vegetation if it wasn't for the dew. There wouldn't be any life in culture if it wasn't for the people of God who are bringing life-giving water to the world around us. And that's what he does as a warrior. He helps us become everything we are created to be, life-giving water, to bring water to a thirsty world. As Jesus said in John chapter 7, remember, he stood up, says that the last day of the feast, John 7, verse 37 and 38, and he says, is anybody thirsty? Come to me and I will give you to drink and out of you will flow rivers of living water. You see, we're to be dew, we're to be showers, we're to be rivers of living water to people around us. So when you go into a coffee shop, when you go to a restaurant, when you talk to a neighbor, when you talk to someone else at work, you see, Jesus wants you to, as you look to him and depend on him, to let his life flow through you, his water flow through you, so that you are living water to those people. You're giving them a taste of the kingdom of God. We're bringing refreshment into their lives, just simply by your love and kindness, but maybe also by sharing truth, maybe by your encouragement. There's all kinds of ways we can bring living water to those around us. And that's what he wants us to be, and that's what a warrior will produce in our lives. But secondly, very interesting. Analogy in verse 8, he uses the same terminology, but notice what he says The remnant of Jacob, again, that's us, will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there's none to rescue. I don't know about you, but that's kind of jarring, isn't it? Lord, you want me to be like a lion? You want the people of God to be like lions trampling down and tearing? What does he mean by that? Well, I think he means we are to be at the forefront of the battle in defeating evil in our world. We're not only due bringing life, but where evil refuses to drink from Jesus. Then the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, are to be standing up to the world's lies speaking truth in the face of all that's being taught out there that's untrue. We are to stand up to Satan, resist the devil and he will flee from us and resist his slander and his destruction where he's trying to destroy people and destroy their relationships and we get involved in their lives and we care for them and love them and provide for them and we're defeating evil when we do so. We're driving it back. We're to work to bring justice to this world. We're to tell the truth about marriage and about sexuality and about abortion and about who we are as God's creation. We're to tell the truth about God's reign. Yes, with a cup of water, but we drive back evil. We are lions serving under our warrior king. Take, for example, abortion. Obviously, it's wrong, and we should say it's wrong. But we drive back evil by doing much more than that. We drive back the darkness by bringing hope and money and resources to unwed mothers, by bringing the message of forgiveness to those who have suffered by having an abortion, We're fighting the wrong views of sexuality by teaching truth. But also we do it by living out God-centered marriages. Or as single people, submitting our sexuality to God so that he is Lord and we're serving under him. And so we show the world there are alternative ways to live than what they're trying to live as they float around in a sea and are lost. You see, our weapons as lions in the world are truth, love, and prayer. So as we pray for those around us, we're bringing in the kingdom of God and we're driving back the darkness. Brothers and sisters, this is a crazy world we live in. Crazy world of stormy seas and winds and confusion and sea creatures that want to eat us. And the world's just floating around and it has no reference points. No way to navigate through life. But by keeping our eyes on him, by navigating by him, by continuing to bounce our prayers and our trust off of him so that we're always oriented to him, we're able to navigate through life and be due and drive back the darkness And be what we need to be and get where we need to get. Jesus came as a baby. He invaded our world to make himself known. And how does he want us to know him? Well, as a friend who's there all the time, that we can enjoy the relationship, delight in him, trust him, hang out with him as a ruler who knows what's right. And therefore, we can surrender and orient our lives according to his will. Not my will, but his be done. As a shepherd who intimately cares for us, but is strong enough to trust in. And as a warrior who defeats our enemies and helps us become everything he created us to be. And right in the middle of this passage, the beginning of verse five says, this one will be our peace. Shalom. The word shalom means well-being, to be, "Ah, I know where I am. I know who I am. And I know who I'm trusting. That is who Jesus wants to be to us. Let's pray. Lord, as we are in this Christmas season, we rejoice in the miracle of you coming as a baby but may Christmas not just be in this season because you came to be far more than that. You came to be our whole navigation system by which we navigate through life. So may we trust you as our friend, as our ruler, as our shepherd, as our warrior so that we can be bringing living water to this world and driving back the darkness. Oh, Lord, use us for your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.